Welcome back to the Policy Viz podcast. I'm your host, John Schwabish. On this week's episode, we are going to talk about running surveys and collecting data and information. And to help me talk about that and to explain all the ins and outs and difficulties and challenges and I guess the rewards too, uh, I'm joined in person actually by uh, David Johnson, who is currently the director of the Panel Study of Income Dynamics at the University of Michigan at Ann Arbor. Uh, David, welcome to the show. Thanks, John. You mean I could have done this remotely? Yeah. <laughs> you have to fly all the way down here to do this. Exactly. <laughs> Who knew? <laughs> How are you? Pretty good. Busy these days. Yeah, pretty busy. Yeah. 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 Why don't we do this? Maybe you could talk a little bit about yourself for folks because you've been doing this sort of business of conducting, running, improving surveys at lots of different places um, for a while now. Yeah. Um, and then we could talk about the PSID because now it's the 50th year of the PSID. Yeah. Okay, great. So so currently I, I'm the director of PSID. I've been doing that for about three years. But before that, I spent 25 years in the federal statistical system. So at the Bureau of Labor Statistics, the Census Bureau, and the Bureau of Economic Analysis doing different surveys. BLS, I helped with the Consumer Price Index and the Consumer Expenditure Survey. Um, the Census Bureau... Help with the current population survey, the American Community Survey, and the Survey of Income and Program Participation, which we spent a whole lot of time re-engineering. And now there's a new SIP out there that's right. collecting this the similar data monthly on monthly income and monthly program participation, but doing it every year instead of three times a year. Right. So I think that was a, that was a good thing. And then at BEA, I worked on. Um, Health insurance and getting a better way to come up with pricing of healthcare. So, the, the hard part in, in in surveys is when you want to change a question. So, yeah. especially in a PSID like a longitudinal survey, you want to have consistency over time. And the current population survey that's used to measure um, employment and unemployment, changing those um, can cause breaks in series. So, yeah. if anybody's ever looked at the the new poverty estimates or the income estimates done by the Bureau, they'll see a break in series in 2013, around 2013 or so, um, when they changed the questions because we wanted to improve the way we collected income. Yeah. That makes it complicated. So when you make a decision like that, you're balancing improvements to the, to the question, but also then the consistency across over time. And then how, how ultimately is that decision made? I mean, there's a lot of testing that goes into making, to, to changing a question. Right. So we did. So we cognitively tested. So in fact, the, the income changes in the current population survey, as well as the health insurance questions, we contracted with a number of different research organizations um, to look at this yeah. um, and to, to come up with suggested questions. You cognitively test the questions, like with focus groups or, or a separate survey, um, if you think you need to, if there's not, if you're not pulling from a another survey. Mm -hmm. um, in the PSID, we try to find questions that people have used before, um, but we'll still um, send them out to a, a random sample to try to see how well they can answer those questions. Right. So you test a random sample of a new question. Are you testing that consistency within that random sample? Or are you comparing it to administrative data? No, no. Most of the time, yeah. So when you're doing the test, you're not usually comparing to see consistency. Yeah. You're looking to see if people understand the question. Okay. Do they understand the way you're asking the question? Right. Um, or do they say, oh, I, I don't know what you're even asking here yeah. when you're asking about my income or the timing of the income or those types of things. Um, so that's that's the main thing. It's really hard to check for consistency yeah. because 
we don't know for sure how people are interpreting questions, mm. right? So there's a lot of times in income, people round, and we don't know if they're rounding up, rounding down, or what they're rounding to the next 10,000 or something like that. So unless we have a baseline, a benchmark to say this question is actually accurate, mm. and right, the only way you could probably do that is to compare to administrative data. Right. Um, and when you do that, household surveys are okay, but there's extreme underreporting. Right. What about the order of questions within a survey? So how does that factor in? Yeah, that does. And I haven't spent much time looking at that. I know there's other places that have looked at um, order because they're concerned about fatigue. Mm -hmm. Um, So in the consumer expenditure survey, you know, they go through all your different spendings of housing and clothing and transportation and trips and travel. And they thought maybe if they move things around, they might get better results. I don't know what the conclusions are in that. Right. So what's going on at the PSID? So it's 50 years. I'm sure there are folks who aren't familiar with the PSID. So maybe you could talk a little bit about it and then what you are all doing now and looking into the future. Right. So the the PSID um, came out of Johnson's war on poverty. So he declared a war on poverty and they realized, hey, we need to figure out ways to measure this. And so um, what the PSID was meant to do was to find families who are in poverty and to move out of poverty. Now, hence, they needed a longitudinal survey. So they contracted with the University of Michigan. Um, Jim Morgan was there who had done a lot of this stuff. Um, And so you can look at these reports of President Johnson to Congress saying, hey, Michigan's got this new survey. It's going to follow families over time. We started with 5,000 families, and we followed them over time. We'll follow the family. If they have kids, we'll follow their kids when they move out. If those kids have kids, we'll follow those kids. And so we have families who started in 1968 who probably have about over 100 different family members in the survey. Yeah. Um, we have some families where the people we're interviewing are in the seventh generation of a family in 1968. That's, that's pretty So amazing. we have amazing numbers. Yeah. And there's about you know, 3,500 people who were still in the survey in 1968. Wow. So we've been doing this for 50 years. We follow the same families. We now have about 11,000 families um, because obviously you grow. We right. tried to replenish it with new immigrants. So, but it makes for a very interesting way to look at, you know, sort of like America's family tree. Yeah. So you can you can look at all the families and everybody's. And the big thing now, and the big research that people are looking at are intergenerational effects. So people know their parents are important, but now we can look at their grandparents. Um, how did their grandparents behave or are they contributing to the child's education? I always like to think of, I am over 50, I'm almost 60, (laughs) so I can think about what I was doing in 1968. Um, So in 1968 is when the show Mr. Rogers' Neighborhood started. And I can just imagine some of these kids watching Mr. Rogers' Neighborhood who happened to be in the PSID who are now Parents or some of them, I'm not yet, but some of them might be grandparents. Right. And so just to think that that's how these families are going and we can find um, what their income is, what their health is, what their education is, um, general well-being, what kind of occupation they've had over this time period, um, how many different relationships they've had or how many times they've been divorced and remarried and how many families are now living together in the same household. A lot of those things um, are really important. So when you talk to some of the families who answer the survey, is there a sense of ownership of the people who are participating? I mean, they've been participating for a long time. It's pretty amazing. Yeah. I feel like 
asking a survey in general and getting people to respond is hard enough, but you've had people in this survey for 50 yes, years. for 50 years. So we were shocked. So this year, in 2017 survey, we added a question that says, so you've been participating in the PSID. Why do you do that? So over half of the respondents either answered either loyalty to their family mm. or loyalty to the survey. And you read some of these responses and they're so, well, I'm doing it for a long time. My mother always did it. My mother's now gone, so right. I feel I have to do it. Some of them were saying, well, I, you know, I, we have our family. We feel obligated that we should be doing this. There are some families that when we start interviewing in March, every, every other year we interview in March, they go, oh, I've been looking forward to your phone uh, call. Right. I've been wondering when you're going to call. Yeah. Um, obviously, that's not all the families, but we have, a, you know, we have about a 94% response rate from the people who we interviewed two years ago, interviewing again. Yeah. So there's a lot. There's obviously people drop out, but there's a lot of commitment to the yeah. to the That's survey. pretty amazing. Yeah. Um, how has the actual survey, the actual physical survey, how has that changed over the last 50 years? So the, the survey, so obviously when we started, it was all on paper. Right. It was probably about maybe 30 minutes. Um, we would go interview people personally. So those 5,000 families would get a personal interview. We moved to then telephone and started interviewing on telephone and, um, and in person and then switched it to a computer-assisted telephone interview or a caddy interview. Where, so most of our survey is now done on the phone. And it's about, it could be about 80 to 90 minutes. So it's a pretty right. long survey. We obviously interview some in person. And we're trying now to move beyond to do something on the web. So we've had supplements where in between the two years, we go out and ask them, certain questions, they could do it on the internet, and we're trying to convert it to internet. But, so that's how we do it. The, the content has also changed. So, mm -hmm. you know, in the beginning, we, it was mostly income and employment, but we've added a lot of questions on health. So health is a big deal. So, right. you know, have you had diabetes or cancer or those types of things? Have you, you know, had a, a childhood experiences with different diseases? Um, your education, your fertility behavior, and how many kids you have, a lot of those things we've added. And then we add other supplements. So the, we followed these same families over 50 years, but then some of the families have kids and young kids. And we want to get more information about the young kids and their primary caregivers. So we have a special child development supplement that goes out and interviews those families with kids. Mm -hmm. And then we have the young adults. So from 18 to 24, they're either living with their parents or moved out. There's a lot of information we want to have about them or the elderly. So we had disability and use of time, a supplement to look at that. So we try to use the, the core PSID, as we call it, to follow the families over time and then other, other offshoots from them. Right. Um, when you think about providing the data to researchers, what's the discussion like? How do you make something that people can get, download, and use relatively easily? Yeah, so providing data that people can use um, isn't that complicated if they want to use one survey, then look at the cross-section of families. The hard part of a longitudinal survey is doing the linkages over year, year, year. So we've tried to develop our website where you can go and you can find a variable, let's say income or even religion or education. And you can go and find that variable and then click all the different years you want. And then the, the website will create a data file for you that puts all those variables together across all the years, and you can use that. Um, and we tried to do it with, other, with the other supplements and do it. So we think it's pretty easy. We have a lot of videos of how to get access to the data and how to do these things. 
um, what weights to use, not really how to evaluate the data, but basically how to construct the data. We have a whole new family mapping system where it would create these families across time and generations oh. for you. So that makes it easier to do that type of analysis. So we have, you know, we get a lot of downloads. We have probably 30,000 data users. We have about 5,000 publications that use the PSID over time and almost 900 dissertations who have used the PSID. And I think right. that's, you know, sort of what makes it exciting. We have a real, a lot of, you know, committed users yeah. and big name users. So we have, you know, there's 11 um, Nobel laureates who have used the PSID. Angus Deaton and Jim Heckman are, are two of the most well-known. Jim Heckman uses the data set a lot. Yep. Um, recently, we've been finding, because we're just this whole idea of a family tree and intergenerational, we're trying to find intergenerational researchers. Right. So somebody who did their dissertation, who their advisor did their dissertation, whose advisor did their dissertation. <laughs> so there's a lot of multi-generational papers right. out there. So it seems like, you know, the, the, this whole idea of the intergenerational goes not just from the survey and the families, but also from the, Within researchers. the researchers. How do you think about creating safeguards so that people can go and they can download the data, but they may not be the experts and there may be consistency issues? Like, so how do you think about, you know, if I go in and download the health data and maybe the health question changed in 1993, um, and so I'm just the so-and-so, and I see this big spike, and I'm like, oh, look at this big spike happen. But really, maybe it's an artifact of the data. So is it the responsibility of the PSID to have all these documents and videos to say, this isn't just for anybody. Like, you need to know what you're doing. So to help with that, we have user help that people can ask. We have trainings. Um, we have a, a week-long training in Michigan to help people. We have shorter segments at professional conferences that we try to help trainings. But we don't try to control how people use the data. Yeah. We try to make it consistent. So if your example on a health variable, if you go through our list and there'll be a variable, it'll say health uh, health status, let's right. say. Let's say we right. change it. We didn't change that one. Education changes a lot. How yeah. do you ask education? So there'll be two or three variables there. And you'll see, oh, we have one variable from 1968 to 1980 and another variable from 81 on. Right. Well, then you'll have to know. Right? You'll, we'll show you have two variables. In your analysis, you're going to have to figure out how to how, do how that. To but we together. will help right. you do that. Right. Um, we haven't spent the time like other places like IPUMS does in trying to make a consistent variable. On some, we have. But on others, we haven't. And that makes it difficult. And what that makes it more difficult is we want to improve the questions, but when we think of improving the questions, that means changing the questions. Right. So a recent example is in our data, we try to find out the assets people have. And one of the big things is checking and savings accounts. And we have a question where we ask, oh, do you have a checking or savings or a money market or stocks or all this other stuff? And we get a lot of people saying no. And so our number of people who have checking and savings is a lot lower than other surveys, yeah. the survey of consumer finances. So this time, in 2017, we added a question that says, are you sure you don't have a checking and savings <laughs> account? And, you know, two-thirds of the people said no, started saying yes. Uh -huh. So now we have a lot more people. But what that's going to mean is that means if you're going to look at frequency of people who have checking and savings, you're going to see a break in series right. unless you know yeah, those, How we do this additional change, so, right? But we, but we thought it was much more important to capture the data accurately than over consistency. Right, right, right. So um, give us a view into the day-to-day -day working at the PSID. 
So first question, how big is the team that's working on the PSID sort of day to day? And then, of course, you have an additional group of people, right, that are going out and running the service. Right, right. So, yeah, so we have about 30, 35 staff who are ongoing processing the data. They're either developing the next survey. So so we just finished the end of December. We finished collecting the 2017 wave of data. And so now we're currently processing the data. So we have to go through and make sure... All those families, when they said, oh, this person was living with us, we have to make sure that that person they said is living with them isn't living in another family because all the families overlap. Yeah, right. So there's a lot of processing that's done. But then we have to start developing the instrument that will start being collected next March. So we have to develop the instrument. And then we have to help upload the data and get it processed. So day to day, there's all these. There's the development. There's the data processing. And then there's the application development, which is getting the, the data out. Right. Um, so that's constantly. Now, what I do today day-to-day, I don't know, I come here and talk to you, I go to conferences, <laughs> right. I try to plug the PSID, um, but then I'll have to, you know, we'll have to review some of the changes in the questions or right. how people might answer. Um, there's a, we had a big push this year to add new immigrants to the survey. So one of the data problems of a longitudinal survey that starts in 1968 is the country's changed a lot since 1968. Yeah, right. So we want to try to get a whole set of new immigrants in. Well, we have to look at those data and figure out how they responded and how they're going to be captured in the next wave of the survey. So you know, some of these people who have been going on and on and on are pretty easy to follow over time. But the new ones are harder. Or if a split off, if you have a new, uh, a new child that gets married and moves out of the house... Mm-hmm. Um, and moves in with a whole other family, you have to figure out how you're going to follow those. So all those questions are really what the, the staff are doing day to day. Then, as you said, we have a whole other group of people who are basically collecting the data. Yeah. So there's five or six people who oversee you know, 50 to 100 data collectors that are either on the phone or going around the country interviewing people. So you have to train them and then you have to help them collect the data. So it's now mostly computer-assisted on the phone. So the people who are collecting the data, when they travel, are they like hunting people down who, who they can't get a hold of? So, well, so we try to first decide. We look at the people who respond and we know there are people that are harder to get on the phone. Okay. So we try to choose those to go visit. It's okay. a personal visit. Right. Um, and what usually happens is you'd have a personal visit and some of them you complete the interview, but some of them will go, oh, yeah, okay, I'll do that. And then they end up completing it on the phone. Right. So okay. the personal visit helps in two ways. It gets the interview in person, but then it gets an interview on the phone. Right. But other things like the child development supplement, that that study, we want to go and visit these families because we want to see more, get a more of a sense of their the kids' cognitive ability. Or we've started collecting biomarkers. We've started collecting saliva, and that we have to be in person right. for to get that. Yeah. So I think that leads to sort of the last question, which is what's the f- next 50 years of yeah. the PSID? I mean, clearly, like, biomarkers, like, seems to be, like, cutting edge, sort of, like, next wave. Um, what else do you, or what else are you planning and, and seeing for the next generation? Yeah, so that's hard of what, what we're going to see for the next 50 years. So yeah. we try to see, you know, what are we doing for the next five or ten? And I think one of the things, obviously, is, is some biomarkers. People really want to, to look at that. I do think this intergenerational aspect is a big deal. So there's a lot of research out there that looks at mobility. So I'm, I'm a kid 
you know, I grew up in a family with a lot of income. What's the probability that I'm going to have a lot of income when I grow up? Okay, and there are people that have done a lot of estimates on that, PSID most notably. But some people are suggesting that's changed over time. Mm. So it's less likely now when you're a kid that you're going to grow up and whether low income, you're going to grow up and be high income. So I think over time, that's going to matter. Right. Where, where these children are growing up and what their income is when they become adults. Yeah. Um, so the longer the PSID can go, the better we can see if that mobility has gone up or gone down. So right. I think that's, that's one of the big advantages. And the other advantage is the PSID has a lot of other demographics. So you, mm. people have now started looking at mobility and health status or um, there's mobility in occupation, there's mobility in education, there's a lot of other things you can look at of how kids, how their outcomes as adults are related to their outcomes of kids. Okay. I, think that's, I think that's where the future is. So some right. of the best articles you see of kids who grew up when they were in areas that had food stamps, right? What their outcomes are as they're now adults. But that's 68 compared to now, but you can move that up and look at, oh, maybe when the rollout of the ITC came out or rollout of other programs, how that affects the long-term outcomes for these kids. And I think that's sort of the future of how these, how these kids are growing up in, the, in an intergeneration. Right. Great. Cool. Well, thanks for coming all the way down for, for this. <laughs> no problem. <laughs> thanks, Josh. And thanks, everyone, for tuning into this week's episode. Um, I will put links to all the data sets and things that we talked about in the episode. I'll also highlight the uh, part of the PSID website where you can go in and, and grab the data. So I encourage you to do so. Uh, if you have comments or questions, please do let me know. So until next time, this has been the Policy Viz Podcast. Thanks so much for listening.